The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And, and this, this is, is Box, Box Office, Office 30. 30. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. 90s super cinema. We're rocketing into 1991 with a superhero movie that has become something of a cult favorite through the years. It's The Rocketeer. And so I'm Michael, as you probably could tell, and I have a really funny thought about this movie. I am going to label this film as something of a director's question mark. And what I mean by that is the... This is sort of like the Joel Schumacher conundrum. I look at it like this. So, like, how does somebody who makes a beautiful film like this or like, you know, in Joel Schumacher's case, like a the falling down movie. And then they make movies like Jurassic Park 3 or Batman and Robin. (laughs) It really is a head scratcher to me. But with us, as always, is my partner in crime in this 90s super cinema. Say hello to Steven. Hello, everyone. I'm ready to take a trip into Hollywood land. And joining us is a special guest from my other podcast, Box Office 30, who, if you if you know him and I, he's another person that facilitates my madness or my mania and, and kind of keeps me on track. So that's why I have two people here tonight <laughs> to help me stay on track for this podcast. Please welcome Pete. Hello, hello. Uh, I guess we're here set up to uh, double team you, I guess. <laughs> yes. So so we're doing a crossover event tonight with 90 Super Cinema and Box Office 30. deeply love pete loves steven how do you feel about this movie i love it i do love it so it's three people that love this movie great (laughs) so it's going to be a totally totally objective perspective on this really one-sided here i'll say i love it it's not without its flaws but i love it It, it's not without its flaws but i have some thoughts that we'll get into it but let's first dive into the premise of this film in the 1930s of hollywood local pilot Cliff Secord stumbles upon a jetpack invented by Howard Hughes that allows the user to rocket through the air. During a stunt show gone wrong, 
Secor dons the uniform uh, and with a really cool-looking rocket. I'll tell you, it looks awesome. And a helmet and is dubbed the Rocketeer by, like, the showrunner of the, the air show. Pursued by the FBI and the Mafia, Secord wants to turn in the device, but when his starlet girlfriend Jenny is kidnapped by a swashbuckling, double-crossing movie star, the Rocketeer has to make one last flight to save her. What a premise. <laughs> it's a mouthful, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, Stephen, what? Let's tell us a little about the development of this movie and how this kind of came to be. So, it's based on the Dave Stevens comic book of the same name, which owes a great deal to the Rocket Man and Commander Cody shorts of like the 1930s and 40s. Are you guys familiar with these movie serials at all? No, I wasn't familiar with. These. I have in my possession here the Radar Man Ooh. from the Moon VHS tape. <laughs> which features Commander <laughs> Cody. And I remember when this movie came out, there was a lot of press that showed clips from Rocketman, Commander Cody. And that's kind of how I knew about it and got into it. And so the character first appeared in 1982. It was, and the movie was developed through the 1980s with writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. Do you know who they are? Do those names ring a bell? Danny Bilson rings a bell. They're a writing team. They worked on another 90s superhero show called The Flash. Uh-huh. Right. This is the same team that brought The Flash <laughs> wow. to television. Okay. I, I can kind of see that by the way this story is sort of told and interesting. That, that makes a lot of uh, things in my head kind of go off here. Interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, so, and they were, so they were in development on this for many years. When it finally got the green light, it ended up shooting the same summer that The Flash was shooting. So they could barely be on set because they were too busy with the Flash pilot. Wow. And yeah, so I think they got to kind of visit once or twice. It was initially written for a director named William Deere, who was developing it with them. He's best known as the director of Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, wow. Another 80s classic. Uh, Different writers were brought on, you know, kind of back and forth. Eventually it did go back to uh, Bilson and DeMeo. I think I read that Frank Darabont also did a pass at one point. Really? Yeah. Really? Wow. So, you know, it was in development for so long and eventually William Deere had to, had to depart the project and it went to director Joe Johnston, who was fresh off the success of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was obviously a massive hit in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was the development of the movie. And when did you guys first see this movie? So I first saw this in the movie theater because I was just so excited because I loved the idea of the character, even though I didn't know much about the comic book version of the character before this at all. I just thought it looked really cool. It was a Disney movie. I was like, come on, this is going to be great. Seeing it now, I have different thoughts about the movie (laughs) as opposed to seeing it when I was 11 years old or 10 years old. But um, I loved it then and have loved it ever since. What about you, Pete? This was a VHS um, find for me. Uh, you know, anybody that listens to Box Office 30 will know that I had a couple of friends that I grew up watching various movies on the weekends with, and this was definitely no exception. They had picked up the VHS of this, and we watched it at their house, and from that moment on, we were hooked. Uh, yeah, we really liked uh, this movie, and I don't know, kind of as you were just saying, I'm, I'm probably just going to mirror it. There is so much as a kid at that age to like about this. I mean, it's... 
it's got all these great, um, you know, sort of swashbuckling tropes of those kind of serials that Steven was mentioning, you know, where it's, I mean, the aesthetic's really cool. It's got kind of this like steampunk, diesel punk kind of, you know, look to it, very art deco. And, you know, something about that's a little bit different. I mean, like you said before, the rocket, the helmet, everything's just so appealing. You know, when you're a kid, it just looks really cool. I don't know. We were just all in when we went to watch it. And then it's just a lot of fun. It, it very much like Dick Tracy, as far as the kind of general feel of it, I feel like at that time. Yeah. Steven, what about you? When did you first see it? What were your initial thoughts as a kid? So I also saw this in theaters. There was a local dollar theater in Levittown, New York, you know, where you would see second run movies. Movies used yes. to be in theaters for so long that you would see them second run after they played their initial run at a major theater. And I had my birthday party at this theater. And if you had your birthday party there, you got a free year's pass of the movies. Ooh, and your entire terrible. family could go to the movies and see whatever you wanted for an entire year. And so that summer, my mom took my brother and I to see The Rocketeer. And again, I loved it. I had a Rocketeer t-shirt from that I think my mom got me at Sears with that kind of Art Deco poster on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I, at the time, I didn't know that much about 1930s Hollywood and movies and yeah. Nazis. I didn't know what Nazis were right? <laughs> as a 10-year-old kid. So some of that was a little lost, but I thought, you know, the superhero stuff was really cool. It reminded me of Dick Tracy a little bit in kind of the 1930s aesthetic, also 1989 Batman in the 1930s aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So I dug it. So let's talk about right now, what are your thoughts about it now that you've rewatched it 30 years later? Pete, as our guest, oh, and I have to note... All three of us this evening, or whenever you're listening to this, are Long Islanders. Oh. <laughs> from from various points on the island. Have we got the whole thing covered? Have we got like We've got Nassau County, we've Nassau got Western Suffolk, and Eastern Long Island and East End. So Very we're, nice. we're fully covered in, in all sections of the island, which is great. Well so who better to cover a movie set in California than three guys from Long Island? <laughs> <laughs> so Pete, what are your initial thoughts of after rewatching this? Like what do you feel about this movie now? For me it still holds. Um I, again, anybody that's you know listened to our show knows that it doesn't take too much to impress me. I mean, basically if the movie's like in color or even sometimes when it's not, I'm pretty much good to go. Um but uh you know, I don't know. I, there's something about it that's just got a lot of charm and you know, as you look at this as an adult, yeah, there's some things that are like, you know, a little bit more where you have a, a different view on it, like all of the Nazi thing, right? So, I mean, like, you know, we're learning about Nazis at that age via this, via, you know, Indiana Jones and all that sort of thing. And it's it's not got the full weight of it, but the movie Nazi is a fun thing where they're always chasing down these like relics or technology that are going to help them take over the world. You know, I mean, the... Uh, the segment in this where it's like the I think Howard Hughes and the FBI captured it where it's like the cartoon um, propaganda film of how they're going to like rocket around the world. I mean, it's it's so great. And it's like, you know, especially looking back at this and thinking about the fact that even though it launched under Touchstone, that this is a Disney production and they had like some Disney animators working up Nazis and, you know, I mean, stuff like that. It's uh 
is very funny, but I don't know. I, I still really enjoy it. That said, I was trying to get my kid to watch it with me and she kind of floated out of the room. And then on a second time I went to watch, I tried to get my wife <laughs> to view it. And she's like, I've only got so many hours in the week to watch something. This is not what I'm going to watch. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know that it holds up for everybody, but, you know, for me, it's good. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> So, Stephen, what about you after rewatching it? So, I love that it's very earnest and sincere as a movie and, you know, about the character, the world. This does not play it for laughs, really. You know, when he's the Rocketeer, he's a hero and, you know, right. people believe in him. There's a real Americana aspect to it. Literally, at one point, he's posing in front of the American flag. Yeah. like a statue where you're like okay i get it you're laying it on a little thick but i get it uh yeah i think it's you know on the rewatch it it really held up for me i think the second act is a little soggy at points um they just kind of need to get keep getting cliff back into that rocket suit mm-hmm. so they keep having to construct reasons why he has to keep going back in that rocket suit instead of being a reasonable human being and just giving it back <laughs> So that everyone he knows and loves isn't constantly threatened by the mafia or Nazis. You know, it's just a rocket pack, Cliff. Give it back. Um, But the third act is phenomenal. I mean, the third act just plays so well. You know, it's got the the, kind of the showdown at the Griffith Park Observatory. That was so good. The Zeppelin chase, the mobsters, the FBI, Howard Hughes, (laughs) the Nazis. They just go all in on that third act. And uh, yeah, that was kind of my takeaway. So I loved this rewatch of this movie. I literally finished it about 10 minutes before we started doing this podcast, which is really funny. But what's interesting about it is I loved the old Hollywood feel of the movie. Like it really tried to paint that picture of old Hollywood and even movies that would have been made maybe in the 40s or 50s and so on and so forth and just that aesthetic felt really organic and natural and it has a lot of interesting tropes about the way different things are you know appearing on the screen and and how you see visuals i loved the acting i thought everybody really went for it it does have a dick tracy feel to it as well and i i enjoyed it so very much now the one thing that I kept saying to myself is, wow, they have a stacked cast in this movie. They do. There is, there is some real, real great actors in this movie. And I'm going to talk about them right now. So we start off with uh, Billy Campbell, who plays Clifford or Cliff Secord, a.k.a. the Rocketeer. And unfortunately for Billy Campbell, there, he really doesn't have much of a career beyond this movie where he's the lead actor in a film that I can think of, right? Like, this didn't rocket his career into so superstardom. Speak. Literally, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, he pops up here and there and other stuff, but yeah, you know, I don't know that he's like the strongest, strongest actor in this movie, but he no. does a decent job with it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's a shame that he kind of never went on to really do something bigger and better. I feel like because a decent enough looking guy. I mean, the funny part is, is I was looking the other day cause I got curious about some of the behind the scenes sort of stuff. And, you know, they were looking at a number of other much bigger named actors yeah. um, to fill in this role. 
And yet they went with him. And I, the reason I kind of keep falling back to it, and again, this isn't to take away from his acting chops, but he just so looks the part. Like he, does, he just he so has that like perfect kind of 30s, 40s film kind of look to him, you know? Yeah. And speaking of who they tried to get, they had tried to get literally every actor in Hollywood, including Kevin Costner, Matthew Muldine, Dennis Quaid, and Bill Paxton. Disney really wanted Johnny Depp for the part, and Johnson even met with him on the set of Edward Scissorhands while the actor was dressed as Edward Scissorhands, and ultimately Campbell got the part, which I find very interesting, but you're right. He does have this kind of you know, period look of this 1930s, 40s, old Hollywood look. Now, the next major player in the movie is Jennifer Connelly, who plays Jenny Blake. And if you don't know this, the original character is based off of Betty Page, the notorious pinup model in comics. Mm -hmm. But but because of Disney Touchstone, they they didn't want to use Betty Page because she's too over-sexualized, and they changed the character's name to Jenny Blake. And it got me thinking... If they had changed Betty Page's name, they probably should have changed Cliff Secord's name. Because the name Cliff Secord, to me, doesn't sound like superhero. (laughs) You know, it's like, it, it kind of falls flat. But whatever, neither here nor there. Anyway, regarding the, you know... This is the first time I ever saw Jennifer Connelly in a movie. And- I mean, let me just cut in one quick, quick thing I would throw in there is Secord is a type of plane. So it might be that they're trying to tack it to that a little bit. Right. But the, the last name is fine. It's the first Cliff. name. That's <laughs> a, cool, a cool first name. I mean, well, the other thing, too, is like, isn't that like the name in the comic? Are they trying to stay true to that? It is. You think? It is. It is, the, it is true to the comic. But if if Betty Page is true to the comic. And they changed that name. They well, could Betty in the comic. I don't know if it was Betty Page. No, no it is. It's, it's Betty is Page. It? Yeah. Is it literally her? Yes. Right. You want proof? <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It definitely bars. Awesome. I just didn't remember if they actually is... literally used the last name Page with it as well, or if it just was Betty. Yeah. You know, I, I wish they like someday if they make a version of this with the actual Betty Page, that'd be a cool movie or show. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, imagine if they had pissed off the tens of uh, <laughs> Rocketeer comic fans of the time, you know? <laughs> so um, the writers, they they knew they wouldn't be able to get away with using a cheesecake model in their family-friendly movie, so they ended up having to modify the role. And I, I look at it like this. Like, I really think that Jennifer Connelly is great in every scene that she has but they don't give her an incredible amount to do and they just make her more the damsel in distress but they were going for that like 1930s 1940s movie feel which oftentimes female leads tended to fall into that damsel in distress you know role I also love the old trope that she repeats several times over, which is like smashing a vase on somebody's head and just completely obliterating them. (laughs) Like they just get totally knocked out by that. I mean, that's so great. That's also another artifact of a bygone era. Yes. Yeah. But I'll I'll agree with you. They, they kind of whiff her part a bit where she doesn't get a lot of action. Uh, 
she is often in peril and that's her uh-huh. role and she doesn't get to play the hero as much as you'd like. She doesn't get to play right. a three-dimensional character as much as you'd like. Whereas Betty Page would definitely have been a better, <laughs> a more aggressive choice. Yes. Uh, now, they kind of just make her a background extra who wants yeah. to be a star. Yeah. And, and, you know, like in kind of the vein of this sort of thing, she's also a bit of like eye candy to the point, like when she meets W.C. Fields, there's like oh, a shot my. that like just like pans down to her chest and it hangs there for almost a little bit too long. You know? A lot too long. <laughs> a lot too long. But, but, you know, and I wanted to mention that, like, they do pull real life people into this story. And, you know, W.C. Fields is one of those major ones. And the actor that plays him sounds and, and <laughs> does his mannerisms to the T. And if you know any history about W.C. Fields, that is something that person would really do in real life. It's just seeing it in a Disney movie, it's a little uncomfortable. You're like, ooh. <laughs> Jeez, that's a that's a very long male gaze there. <laughs> well, and 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 a lot of this movie is revolves around when it comes to her scenes, looking at it through the male gaze, and it's it's a little uncomfortable at times to watch it that way. Yes, and she kind of she gets duped pretty easily by yes. Timothy Dalton, who is charming. Don't get me wrong, yes. Timothy Dalton's very charming. Uh, and she does ultimately discover his secret, and she's the cause of that. But yeah, it's you wish that she had a, she was a little bit more forceful. So, so speaking of Timothy Dalton, he plays Neville Sinclair, an Errol Flynn type actor who ends up being a Nazi spy. And for me, this was my first exposure to Timothy Dalton. I had not seen any Bond films with him prior to this, and. Whenever I would watch a Bond movie, I'm like, I can't watch him because he's the bad guy from The Rocketeer. And he's so horrible in this movie. <laughs> like, he, he's just so disgusting that at one mo- moment, I'm watching the movie and Dory says, put your headphones on. I don't want to hear this guy talk. <laughs> he's so disgusting. It's really kind of funny. Um, he's good at playing a sleazeball. Oh, um, I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. Hot Fuzz, but he's fantastic as the bad guy in Hot Fuzz. Oh, he's great in that. Yes, he he's so good in this. I mean, he really chews up the scenery. And actually, he was really the acting draw for this movie at the time. Because like we were saying, you know, Billy Campbell, relatively unknown. Jennifer Connelly, I mean, yes, she just came off Labyrinth, but she's still relatively unknown. So really, it's like Alan Arkin and Timothy Dalton are like some of the main, main kind of like pulls as far as, you know, star power for this movie. And Alan Arkin plays Peavy, Cliff Secord's best friend, father figure, and like super engineer who can essentially build and repair and fabricate anything <laughs> overnight. He builds the Rocketeer head helmet in like five hours overnight <laughs> using like a hacksaw. Yeah. I mean, one of my takeaways after this film is why hasn't Howard Hughes hired this guy? <laughs> because he's solving all the problems with the rocket. Yeah, seriously. And next up, speaking of Howard Hughes is future lost star, Terry O'Quinn, who is awesome as Howard Hughes 
And he really like, oh my god! When he popped on screen, I was like, yes, yes, it's John Locke. Yes, I forgot. I was so happy. I was like, oh my god, this is awesome. His intro is and hilarious then, when he he throws the when he's like, tell him Howard Hughes said so. <laughs> Just in so case good. you didn't get it, was Howard Hughes. He's gonna lay it on. Really big. <laughs> oh, and every single scene that he pops up, they pay reference that this is Howard Hughes. It's Howard Hughes is here. Yeah. Oh my God, Mr. Hughes is here. And you see the Spruce Sorry. Goose. They have to work in the Spruce Goose. Yes. I told you it could fly. It's, it's, it's so. I mean, so you know, but note. like, you know, period wise, it's like he's like the equivalent of like an Elon Musk or something. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. if you're in the room with Elon Musk, everybody's gonna be like, "Oh, that's Elon Musk." You know? So. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I thought they did a really good job with how they portrayed that character. I actually really like when that character of Howard Hughes pops up randomly in movies because they do use him like that in sort of random films, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And rounding out the cast, playing everybody's favorite mobster, Eddie Valentine, is Paul Sorvino. And when I saw his name pop up in the opening credits, I was like, yes, I love Paul Sorvino. <laughs> Everybody in this movie is awesome. Everybody in this movie is awesome. So that's my thoughts on the cast, that everybody is awesome. What are your guys' thoughts on the cast? I mean, for me personally, it was banging the thing over the head again here, but I thought everybody did a really good job with exactly what they were doing in these roles. Um, You know, even if you have some folks that didn't have as much to do like Jennifer Connelly's character or some cases, Alan Arkin's character, when they're on scene, like they're just so much fun and they're believable as who their characters are. I I don't know. I really enjoyed each one of their performances. I I agree. And this also has so many character actors that pop up for, you know, a few seconds, and you're like... The oh, FBI yeah. guy! Yeah, Ed Lauder <laughs> plays the FBI guy. Ed Lauder was in, you know, a million Charles Bronson movies. Uh, John Polito, who's in a bunch of the Coen Brothers movies, plays the guy that runs the, uh, you know, the airport where they're all working. Mm-hmm. Clint Howard has a little role. Melora Hardin from The Office plays a singer. Max Grodenchik from Deep Space Nine is in it. Margot Martindale, who plays the, you know, the owner of the Bulldog Cafe, has been in a million things. Uh, Superman's dad from Lois and Clark. They they grabbed anybody off the street in Hollywood. Hey, play a couple lines in this movie. Come on. I mean, so many recognizable, great character actor faces yeah. that, again, really put you into this 1930s mindset. It's Mustaches uh, and all, because everybody had those really weird mustaches. <laughs> there's something fun that you kind of touched on and i didn't want to get too far away with it with neville sinclair is the fact that you were mentioning that he's like an errol flynn type and i don't know if you guys know this really fun little bit of trivia along with that is errol flynn was for a while accused of being like a secret nazi spy in hollywood in real life really so the character of neville sinclair is based off of a real life, like basically rumor about Errol Flynn. And the funny part is if you kind of read about Errol Flynn, like his career kind of goes downhill once that sort of starts happening to him, once people start claiming that he's actually like a Nazi spy. And, you know, it's kind of like pre when people were calling, you know, people communists, you know, kind of like in that sort of zone. So I I just thought that was a really fun thing about this character is that they took this idea that in real life he was not, 
a Nazi spy, but the idea of like, what if he really was, you know, and he's like Hollywood's leading man and they turned it into this character. So I thought that was a really fun way to kind of make life imitate uh, or art imitate life rather. No, that, that was cool. I didn't know that. That's a good fact. That's, that's, that's amazing. Good. You know, they, they do play with the kind of mythos of Hollywood and these urban legends. And, you know, I love the way they're responsible for the destruction of the Hollywood land sign. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's so great. I, I thought, funny enough, as a kid, I thought that was a true story. <laughs> like, like, that's really why it disappeared, the word land. I was like, wow, that's what happened. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing! Yeah, it, it's so cool, and and you know, anytime I see the Hollywood sign in real life, I I always make the joke. Oh, you know, it used to say land until the Rocketeer made someone crash into it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the characters we haven't touched on is this character that literally feels it's ripped out of the pages of Dick Tracy. Is the character of Luther. Steven, can you tell us a little bit about this character? So he's played by Tiny Ron Taylor, uh, and he's heavily based on 1940s horror actor Rondo Hatton. You know, he's almost an exact re replica of Rondo Hatton. If you Google Rondo mm -hmm. Hatton, that's who it looks like. Uh, and the makeup person did try to make him look like that. Uh, he had starred in movies like House of Horrors and The Brute Man. He was an actor who had developed a condition called, called agromegaly after being exposed to poison gas in World War I which kind of wow. deformed his face. Yeah, and so they really leaned in on that character. And and literally it it feels like like a Dick Tracy character though. Like that's just like if if a, a flat top or whatever could have been substituted into that, that would have been what this character is. And it's a pretty amazing character even though like his mouth doesn't really move too much and you could tell the prosthetics are of the time and of a low budget, but if it's similarly based on a real life person, then they did a great job with it. That's really, really cool. Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, Dick Tracy is like right around this time too. That was 90, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious if they pulled over it being that it's also Disney, some of the team that did that makeup work, because it's so similar, as you say, to some of those characters in Dick Tracy. We can Google that. <laughs> we have the technology. <laughs> I'm curious now myself. He kind of has, you know, how little face sort of looked. Mm -hmm. He's got a little bit of that or, you know, like there was that whole gang from the beginning, like the brow and the stooge. I did a whole podcast on it. And I forgot all their names already. Really? <laughs> yes. Adam and I did one like a year ago and I'm like gone. Oh, actually. <laughs> so it was Rick Baker who created the Lothar makeup. And I don't believe Rick Baker worked on Dick Tracy, did he? You could look that up too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Rick Baker, obviously huge, huge Hollywood um, creator of all manner of creatures and makeup and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised. He didn't work on Dick Tracy, but he's you know Rick Baker is a huge Universal monster horror movie fan. Yeah, and so it makes sense that he'd be the guy to do the Rondo Hatton makeup. I have a thought or a question for you guys. What are your thoughts on the score of the movie by James Horner? I like it a lot. It feels like a old Hollywood movie mixed with like a super heroic, you know, all American guy. What are your guys thoughts on the score? I mean, James Horner is one of these people that I forget 
in between movies how good his music is how great his scores are this one's definitely no exception i mean like the rocketeer theme that kind of plays throughout it's just fun it's got a life to it you know i mean there's not too much to say that you know outside of just that he just did a spectacular job with this i really enjoyed it i think he really knocked it out of the park i agree you know it's his his music just kind of hits you on this gut level sometimes hits you right in the feels it does i'm thinking about you know his score from field of dreams which i can just listen to (laughs) all day every day uh, and obviously he worked they, with James Cameron a bunch. They play the score from Field of Dreams a lot on Sirius XM Cinemagic, and I've been known to sit there and listen to it. <laughs> I mean, somebody's got to. I think you're single-handedly keeping XM afloat. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, since this is a crossover of Box Office 30 and 90 Super Cinema, can you go over a little bit of the box office information for us? I can, but maybe you'd have prepared me to do that. <laughs> let me let me jump over and get some numbers. My goodness, <laughs> Steven's got the Google Doc. The Google, Doc. the Google Doc that you didn't send to me. I shared. <laughs> I, I, I shared it with you. He sent it to you. Didn't I? Did you? But I, I did. Here, hold on. I'll share it with you right now. Is it on Facebook? No. Got it. Hold on one second. Give me a second here. You pain in my ass. This guy's telling me, he's like, when are you going to get on here? And I'm like, I need a link. And he like emailed it randomly. I'm like, you're texting me. Just text it. <laughs> All right. So let's see here. I got to dive through this thing. So you got the numbers for me? You did the work for me? I yeah, did. Stephen does all the work. I just. Thank I, you. I, wow. How about that? I just show up and look pretty. <laughs> I don't do it. Just... Okay. All right. I've got where we are. Okay. Okay. So, so Pete, since this is a crossover with Box Office 30 and 90 Super Cinema, can you go over a little bit of the box office information for us? Definitely. So this one is released on June 21st, 1991. This movie did not do well in the box office. Um, and, and, you know, basically I know it had a little bit of a slow burn with critics and things like that. It ended up grossing 45 million on a $35 million budget, which obviously doesn't make it a giant financial success. Opened fourth place behind Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is, you know, just crushing everything at that point during the year, City Slickers and Dying Young. So this is a movie that I feel like they probably should have either released it in March or like September after the summer rush was over, I think it would have done better. And here's a little scary fact. I'll be 39 in June and in city slickers, Billy Crystal yells out, I'm 39 years old (laughs) and I'm saying moo cow in a river. Can you believe this? (laughs) That's how far my life has come. (laughs) Very good. Welcome to it. (laughs) yeah i mean you know whether they released this then or earlier or later i think this one was kind of doomed to failure and i think it's a little mix of they didn't quite know what to do with this movie you know they they disney at that point in time you have to remember is still extremely family oriented company so this and dick tracy were kind of like you know, outside ventures for them, you know, where they had like gunplay and things like that happening, not your Disney norm. So I think, you know, if I remember the details of this correctly, I think they started it under the Disney pictures, um, you know, 
distribution sort of headline. And then they pushed it over to Touchstone because they were worried that basically it was not going to be you know, great for younger kids that parents weren't going to bring younger kids due to some of the more violent, you know, tones in this Nazis, things like that. But then I don't think they a hundred percent marketed it well to older kids or teens uh, or even adults quite as well. So, you know, they kind of shot themselves in the foot with this one. And I think that's why it ends up kind of not being able to compete with Kevin Costner as Robin Hood, you know, just like steamrolling them um, in the middle of the summer, um, you know, big time movie, you know, area there. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I think this poor movie just wasn't going to ever quite get where it needed to go. <laughs> now I'm wondering, is 35 million a big budget back then or like a middle of the road kind of budget? I mean, as we've looked at things over in our podcast, I would expect a movie like this to be around that number. You know, this one definitely has more special effects. They have ILM working on this. So a lot of money's heading over to them to do some of that effect work. Lots and lots of practical effect in this, you know, plenty of wire work and things. So in a way, I'm almost surprised that they're not higher than 35. I mean, when you think about movies that you and I have reviewed, uh, like in the vein of um, Total Recall or um, Die Hard, you know, those movies are, are hitting this number and then some. Right. Now that said, some of those were known to be among the top, you know, budgets at that point in time. So I don't know. This is probably right where it needs to be. There's also not a huge star in this movie to suck up right. this giant actor fee. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if they leaned into that because of the fact that they knew they were going to spend so much money on visual effects. They're like, hey, well, we can't really afford somebody like a Kevin Costner mm-hmm. or, or so on and so forth because they knew they got to spend all this money on visual effects, which for the time, the visual effects were pretty decent. I mean, they look dated now, but back then you saw a guy in a rocket pack, you were like, Holy crap. <laughs> he's in a rocket pack. He's flying all over the place. Here's a big question. Amazing. How is he not burning his ass with that fire shooting the rocket pack? <laughs> right? Every time right, I so, watch it, I'm like, how is his ass not just on fire? If we're going down that road, there's definitely issues with the rocket pack. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like point in case, like they keep talking about throughout the whole thing. Like, we don't know how much fuel. We don't know how long this thing will last. Seems to have like an infinite fuel source. You know what I mean? Like to even the point, like at the end of the movie, I I forget. I think they mentioned the thing might run on kerosene or something like that. But even at the end of the movie, when Neville blows up, I mean, there's like a bullet hole near the top of the tank. And yet the the fuel is still coming out of the top of that, right? Yes, I mean, like, let's question how fuel and in that and they're talking about like the pressure in it is a problem is able to be held down by a piece of chewing gum. (laughs) But I mean, like, there's definitely believability issues when it comes to the rocket. And and the tank is fueled by, they say it like, uh, like alcohol. Yeah, yeah, there's some sort of funky fuel to it. I couldn't remember exactly what it was. But but also, you got to figure the rocketeers got to keep his legs perfectly straight <laughs> if he even deviates a hair those pants are going to be on fire yeah, totally yeah. totally i mean steven's point is so valid because like you know you brought up before like the scene where he's like in front of the american flag at the observatory and then he takes off and a lot of the times when he takes off it leaves like this enormous fire mm-hmm. from wherever he like launched from you know what i mean like sometimes it just doesn't which is also bizarre but quite a lot of the times when he launches from the ground it just leaves like this big six foot like at least big fire on the ground and yeah i think i think you're right he'd be pretty toasty or at least his white pants 
chance would be showing a little bit of char, probably. Yeah. I mean, I mean, every time he takes off, PV gets blasted about twenty-five yeah, exactly. feet <laughs> Or his stuntman, because that's like the worst stuntman to actor <laughs> that I've ever seen. Every time I watch it, I'm like, that's Alan Arkin stuntman by a country mile. It's not even close to Alan Arkin. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would bring up, too, is the um, structural integrity of not only the helmet, but Cliff Secord's head, because his head is just smashing through ceilings mm-hmm. throughout this movie. You know, he, he gets his head smashed several times through the ceiling when uh, Luther's uh, bashing him through it. His head goes through the bottom of the airplane during the air show. I mean, like, and, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, and this is more like an observation coming from like the watching it now versus watching it when we were younger. He's not really all that good even at the end of the movie at flying the thing you know what i mean like he's kind of just like stumbling his way through it most of the time pretty lucky but the other thing is it doesn't really dictate how you can steer it it says you can take off and then how to disengage the the fuel but how does he steer he's got no (laughs) wings no like (laughs) i mean they vaguely talk about the idea of the helmet creating a rudder which is supposed to actually help like howard hughes is like oh that's genius why didn't i think of that but but like imagine the pressure on your neck right acting as a rudder (laughs) i'm doing about mach five it's very very little little odd it's and at that i think that's going to cover your like left and rights i don't know what's going to help with your like ups and downs you know this is all very fair well and it's funny because they make it a point to say oh the engine burns cool yeah the fire that's rocking out of it that's not burning cool i get it like oh the backpack's not that hot but everything else is really hot and, and they justify that by saying it's double walled aluminum. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> like, like oh. that uh, good old transparent aluminum from Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Computer. So the merchandising of this movie, there, I personally don't recall all that much merchandising about it back then. Uh, there was a Rocketeer Bendham action figure an official Rocketeer comic book adaptation, and there was also a Nintendo game that was released in 1991 in November, around the holidays. Pete, I know you're a big video gamer. Did you ever even know there was a Rocketeer video I game? I did, and actually, for the time, for Nintendo, that was a really decent game. They were, you know, I mean, again, it's like, you can never talk about, like, graphics. <laughs> compared to like what we have now Mm -hmm. but like for the time then really good graphics really good color he spends a lot of time squatting to duck people's bullets and then like punching people and things like that but again for like a nintendo game of its time it was a lot of fun it was a good game i actually i didn't own this but i remember playing it at a friend's house um, frequently, so I, I I give it marks for the time for sure. Okay. Yeah, compared to the Dick Tracy game, which was garbage, Rocketeer <laughs> game is really good. I didn't know they had a Rocketeer game. I wish I had known because I would have asked for it from Santa that year for sure. <laughs> Santa failed you, sir. He sure did. He sure did. Yeah. 
Here we are, guys. A shocking revelation came to me after hearing the Rocketeer discussion on 90s Super Cinema, and that was that neither Michael nor Steven or even their guest Pete from Box Office 30 had read the original Rocketeer comic books, nor were they aware of the breadth of the promotional merchandise that surrounded the film's release. So, to provide a more complete picture for you, our beloved patrons who are as obsessive as I am, I've decided to school Michael and Steven on the original comics of the 80s and the vintage Rocketeer merchandise from the 90s. No, you guys are super excited about this. <laughs> In our defense, we did talk about the comics and we had read some of them and we did talk about the merchandise, but you like found some stuff that I didn't even know existed. Yes. So and kudos to you. And to be perfectly <clears throat> honest, in several cases, Steve and I have both said, yeah, Adam would know the answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> it's how it goes. It's how it goes. And so I, I just pop in here to provide whatever I can for a brief moment. But this is one thing I want to bring up is the Rocketeer film is 100% appropriate for this show. Because if you'll recall, if there was an interview with the star of the Rocketeer, Billy Campbell, as the final feature in Wizard number one. So the Rocketeer was there from the beginning. I forgot about that. <laughs> Speaking of the actual comics, yeah. though, I'm, I've been sitting staring at my Amazon cart for a week now. So there is the Rocketeer, The Complete Adventures by Dave Stevens. Is that the original run? Correct. Yeah. So okay. if anybody's looking there and you want to find it, that's what you want to find. It's on Comixology. If you have Comixology Unlimited, it's free. But yeah, so anybody who's looking to follow along here with us with as we get into the original source material. Now, Michael, Stephen, believe it or not, the Rocketeer's comic book origins are connected to Shaman's Tears. <laughs> Oh, goody. Of course they are. Even though they were produced 10 years before that infamous image book we have been discussing on the show. So you ask, how? How could this be? Well, The Rocketeer debuted as a backup story by artist Dave Stevens in two issues of Star Slayer in 1982, which was a comic created by Mike Grell, the mastermind behind Shaman's Tears. <laughs> So there could have been a Shaman's Tears Rocketeer crossover, you know? It just didn't didn't come together. Now, there was those first two adventures, then the there was another two that were released as a part of another series that Pacific Comics was doing, and then the actual full story wouldn't be concluded until later when the Rocketeers started being published by Eclipse Comics. So, I mean, he was just kind of like, oh, I'll fit it here, I'll fit it here, I have a part of the story here. But like you said, Michael, since then it's been collecting very nice remastered digitally recolored collections now the other thing that i noticed just for reference there is a much later run called rocketeer adventures volume one written by your favorite mike allred and the cover is an alex ross cover yes so this is actually what this is this is a series of many comics that were an anthology series so they got people like paul dini to write a rocketeer story and so on and so forth so they brought together all these famous comics creators and artists and they would collaborate to create new rocketeer adventures which are very fun wow but yeah they're literally sitting here i'm like that and, and a t-ball bat for my kid are just sitting <laughs> in my car 
<laughs> now, just to catch you guys up, so the first adventure in the Rocketeer series, very similar to the movie. You know, you got your Cliff Secord, a pilot in 30s Los Angeles. He has a mechanic named Peavy. That's all there. But in the comics, his girlfriend's name is Betty. She's literally Betty Page. I assume you guys discussed that on the show. Yeah, we, we did indeed. Yeah. Yes. And so, but it's funny, in the comics, Cliff is super jealous of the photographer she is posing provocatively for. Peter Parker? Yeah, yeah basically. Their relationship <laughs> is a mess. Very Peter Parker, Mary Jane in the 90s. Now, I sent you guys some images from the comic looking at, at Betty in her posing for her work. What did you guys think about that? That would never fly for Disney back then. Maybe still <laughs> yeah. today. <laughs> I, you know, I am actually a really big Betty Page fan, and I've I read too. several books about her. I think it would have been really neat to have done a Rocketeer movie with an actual Betty Page and had mm-hmm. some of those character crossovers. And I feel like that's where the movie kind of flails a little bit and why it wasn't as successful is because it was a movie aimed at more or, you know, the comics are aimed at like an adult market, adults who know these uh, kind of classic Hollywood characters and then they softened it for kids, but then kids at that point didn't care about, like, 1930s and yeah, 40s pop WC culture. Yeah, Fields or right. whoever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, I didn't know who Rondo Hatton was when I was, you know, 10 and I saw this. Now I know who Rondo Hatton is. But, you know, it almost would make sense more now to do Rocketeer as an adult absolutely comic book yeah. movie. Yeah, for sure. Now, the other thing I want to ask you guys about is, so in the comics... The Rocket Pack is much more sci-fi. It's purple. It's it's really wild looking. What did you guys think about that as I sent you that picture in comparison to the stainless steel look from the movie? Well, for for reference, the version of the Rocket Pack you see in the comics is the same that you see in the cartoon show now on Disney. Yes. It's the same exact because it's purple, whereas the one in the movie is this, you know, stainless steel, metallic, also partially aluminum one. I think for the way they translated it in the film made more sense back then because people would be like, why do they have a purple rocket pack? And he's, you know, it doesn't match his costume that well. Sure. But, you know, it's much more nostalgic looking in the cartoon style, I think, and like more unique, I think. Yeah. Now, uh, the second adventure, they call it Cliff's New York Adventure, came many years later. 1988-1989 is when mm. that actually was produced. Betty gets a gig in New York, and now he's going after her. He's got a pilot buddy who kind of helps him on this assignment because there's that big brutish character, Lothar, based on Rondo Hatton, was in that story. He's like a former circus performer. There's this murder-revenge plot going on. But, but the best part of the story for me is that Cliff gets teamed up with a mysterious man named Mr. Jonas, who is actually the Shadow, but he couldn't legally call him the Shadow. I was going to say, is he the father of the Jonas Brothers? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing, though, like, as I was reading this the first time, I'm just like, that wait, that's that's the shadow. He's got the girasol ring. He's got the big nose. They keep putting him in shadow and stuff. So anyway, it was just like that. That was a fun another crossover with pop culture again, like you were saying, Stephen. That no kid would get. That nobody would care about except me. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there, there was like this whole thing in the you know in the nineties where they were hearkening back to superheroes and comic book characters that none of us had reference for. Right. Like Rocketeer, Shadow, Dick Tracy, the Phantom, the Phantom. 
you know, these were not characters that I knew of before the movies came out. So and, it and, was a- and, the, and, and the problem was with a lot of those characters, like like the Phantom and the Shadow and stuff like that, they were even maybe a little bit old for our parents to even get. It was something that like if our grandparents might have taken us to see those movies, they might have gotten it better than our parents even, you know? Yeah, like Zorro or Tarzan. I have mm-hmm. no frame of reference for Zorro or Tarzan. Yeah, now I want to ask you guys here, Dave Stevens' art, it's very lush, it's a very illustrative style. To me, it kind of looks like Norman Rockwell paintings with maybe a little bit more cartoonish coloring to them. And mm-hmm. the characters, they're just, they're super expressive, they're full of life. Of course, you know, the, the Betty drawings are just 40s pinup art, you know, he's just taking Betty Page poses and basically translating them. I think if you look at the work of somebody like Adam Hughes... He mm-hmm. is very much from the Dave Stevens school of art. I also think that the art that you sent us from this book is way ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For 1982? Yeah. Yeah. Way, way. Like the colors and just the style and the wrinkling of the jacket and everything. Mm-hmm. It's very, very – it's almost you know in the vein of how the art progressed in Watchmen as it was such a unique and different art style. It just really popped versus – you know, some of the other stuff you might see of that time, which I'm Definitely. pretty amazed by. Well, it's crazy because, you know, we said Dave Stevens, he only produced basically two full comics over seven years. But when you see those details, the backgrounds, the character poses, everything, you just, you understand it was like a a very focused labor of love, right? Like he obviously wasn't going to release this till it was perfect. So uh, speaking of the comics, though, there was a one-shot comic book adaptation of the movie that was produced when it came out it had a dave stevens cover of cliff in the costume you know posing in front of the american flag like in the film love Mm -hmm. that shot but the interiors were not by dave stevens which kind of makes sense because he'd just be repeating himself even though the movie changed quite a bit but Mm -hmm. he's like well i kind of already drew that (laughs) well i just ordered the book on amazon so there you go see luck in the midst of this podcast it's working already now one of the things that i brought up when the movie came out, I mentioned to you guys, I said, do you remember the Pizza Hut kids meal promotion? Any recollection at all, guys? Long Island Italian kid. Pizza Hut was not in our, our vocabulary. No. <laughs> Long Island Greek kid. We went to Pizza Hut all the time, uh, constantly, <laughs> for the book it promotion. Yes. Uh, I don't remember this at all, and I, you would think I would have, yeah. because I love comic books and I love Pizza Hut, but no, no memory of this. Yeah, because at Pizza Hut, you could get, like, they had, like, basketballs for, like, the Final Four competition one year. You could get, like, puppets. They had a lot of puppets, right? Land yeah. Before Time and Eureka's Castle and Eureka's all this. Eureka's Castle. I remember that very well. <laughs> yeah. And X-Men. They did, like, a whole Oh, X-Men yeah, a lot of X-Men. But what, what they did for the Rocketeer, it just, it stood out to me. I went with my buddy Eric to go for lunch one Saturday, and we got our Rocketeer kids meal pack, which included... This awesome, like, bright yellow collector's cup in the shape of the Rocketeer's helmet. Like, the cap was just, like, a fully sculpted, the fin and everything was beautiful. Then you got a flying foam Rocketeer-shaped glider. So, you know, like those ones where you have to, you just, like, insert the wing on your own and then you throw it. Like, it was that type of one. Yeah, but it was just the shape of his body flying. Wow. 
There was a little pamphlet called the Rocketeer Times that just had like a little bit of info on the movie and, and some uh, little activities. But even the personal pan pizza box had great graphics on it. Just like beautiful, beautiful artwork. So and I had that cup for years and then it just got lost somehow at my mom's house when she moved uh, like last year. I was like, oh, she's going to find it. She did not. She found a Masters of the Universe thermos that went with my old lunchbox, but she did not find my Rocketeer cup. So I was bummed. But the reason I wanted to talk about the merchandising so much, guys, is that my friend's dad, the same guy who got me into collecting comics in the early 90s, was a huge fan of the Rocketeer when it came out. And one day, I walked upstairs into their rec room to find a gigantic shrine on top of their entertainment center, and it had nearly every licensed Rocketeer item that had come out for the movie. It was just... No way. Yeah, he just had it full display, including the original comics. Like, he had it all. So so all the stuff we're about to talk about, I've seen firsthand. In fact, he was selling it on eBay a few years back, and I just didn't have the money to buy it at the time. He even said, I'll give you a discount, but I was just like, ah, I just, I'm, I'm out right now. I can't afford it. And if he was selling it now, I'd be jumping on it. So I'm so sad I missed out. So here's some of the stuff that came out, guys. What would you generally expect when Disney is releasing a movie... What are they going to produce? So I would assume it's one of those things that you would ratchet back, like had little wheels, and you'd let it go, and it would look like he was flying across the table, but it was on wheels. There was one of those. Very good. As well as, of all things, the Zeppelin. So there, there oh, was the no Rocketeer way. and the Zeppelin, just a blimp. You know, like that's all oh, it was. I would think some PVC figures were made. Yep. Yep, so there was definitely some little PVC figurines. But, you know, the other thing is what usually when you would go either to the bookstore or to the drugstore, Disney's going to put out all sorts of books, right, based on these movies. So there was a storybook. There were a couple different ones. One was a picture book, but the other one was illustrated. And my friend Jeff, you know, from Sequel Quest, his wife was a huge Rocketeer fan as a kid. And she still has the illustrated book, which contains swastikas in illustrations where the Nazi villains appear. So Disney allows swastikas in a children's book. Oh, wow. There was also a book and tape set that was a storybook that was printed in 3D, and then you had, like, the sound effects cassette that came with it, and the 3D glasses looked like the Rocketeer headpiece, like eye holes. So it looked like you were Hmm. putting on the helmet in a little... I saw it at Retrocon a few years back, and I was like, wow, this is just beautiful. Plus, there is a poster book a coloring book, and there was a junior novelization, but also an official novelization written by Stephen, who is the most prolific comic book writer and movie novelization writer. I would guess Peter David? Correct. Okay. <laughs> he wrote he wrote the Batman Forever adaptation, which was fantastic. I bet. He, he's got to add some extra fun stuff in there, I bet. I want to read it now. Stephen, a little side note, because I had to look. It says that Denny O'Neill wrote the Batman Forever novelization. There, then there were two because because I'm sure Peter David wrote the one that I had. Michael, was it maybe the comic book adaptation, not the just novelization? It says graphic novel. Oh yes, no, yeah. No. We're, we're we're talking about the novelization, like just the book. Oh, who you reads calling books me out on this, Michael? A who Batman Forever it? trivia? Who reads books without pictures in them? Come on, this is a comics podcast. I'm look. I'm looking at the copy I had right this now. This is a Lord of the Rings podcast. <laughs> Nine million words. 
But we appreciate you looking that up. You should actually just search right now on eBay. Just go Rocketeer 1991 Vintage, and maybe you'll be able to see what we're talking about here. Because now, Tops did publish an official souvenir magazine, like the Batman 89 magazine. Also, official trading cards. Now, I have a near-complete set that I assembled just by opening individual packs over the years, but I also traded Jason at the Retro Network for a complete boxed collector set that he found at an antique store. Tops used to do that back in the day. You could just buy the whole set, and usually they included a few extra bonus cards that were only part of that set. Hmm, interesting. Now, what what else are kids looking for? What's an impulse buy item that kids want to have for any movie or cartoon character? In 91, was it Pogs? No Rocketeer Pogs. They were just before the Pog boom there was the Rocketeer. But what would be next to the trading card, Stephen? What would you always find? Stickers. Mm, stickers, I do believe existed. But what I'm going for is Rocketeer Candy. These were candy oh, containers. One I remember that, those. Yes. So there was like one that was the Rocketeer's body, and I'm pretty sure the candy was in the jetpack. So, and the other design style for those candy cases, whatever you want to call them, was the Rocketeer's helmet. Yeah, I remember the helmet one. And what's interesting is my buddy's dad, you know, the one who had the full collection there, he actually just bought the entire display. So it was like, you know, 12 or 18, however many came in a tray. So he just had that entire display of the heads and the full Rocketeer body candy dispensers just up there for display, which is kind of interesting. The next thing is, this is the bottom line, the biggest disappointment, right? There was no action figure line for the Rocketeer, but... There was a 10-inch tall Rocketeer doll, I guess you would call it, that was made by Applause. Applause was this weird company that licensed a lot of, like, movie and cartoon stuff back in the day, and they would usually sell their stuff at stationery stores. But it was basically a hollow rubber figure with a detachable rocket pack and two weird points of articulation because they were in the middle of the bicep. So you could really just bend it right above the elbow and make him put his fists on his waist. But if you turned him any other direction, he just looked ridiculous. <laughs> and so I, I had that and I posted pictures, you know, on our social media of my bedroom when I was 10 and 11. And there he is. Like I had him prominently in my room right next to my short box, you know, as I was building my collection. So the Rocketeer watched over my comics back in the day. Now, what's the other essential item for kids of our era that they're going to market it, they're going to get it in front of you. You Maybe you're going to go to Blockbuster and see it on the shelf and say, should I rent this? What would it be? Cartoon. The video cartoon. game. Yes, video game. You're right, Michael. They should have done a cartoon. Also missed opportunity. But they did have a video game released for the Nintendo. And I had the one for the Super Nintendo. It was so hard. Like, I couldn't get past the first level. You had to fly a plane race, and I couldn't figure out the mechanics of it. I just want to be the Rocketeer flying around in a jetpack. I do not want to fly the the GB and then lose a race 20 times in a row. So I tried for months, and I finally just ended up trading it for a VHS tape last year. Because I was just like, I don't want this. I This guy's like, if you have video games, I'll trade you. I was like, okay. So here it goes. <laughs> uh, speaking of VHS, you better believe I watched it every Sunday at home for from 1992 to 1993, that was Rocketeer Day for me. And I still have a sealed copy of the movie that I'm trading to Steven so he could add it to his collection. You sure are, and I sent so, you the two tapes so we're trading. Let me for. ask you this important question there, sir. 
if you have all of this untapped knowledge, why were you not on the podcast yeah, exactly. to talk about all this stuff? Yeah, we're going to have to have you on it every time now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This is, this is the supplementary material here. Now, just going off the list of miscellaneous items, some were random, some were you would expect, but there was... A coffee mug, okay. There was a lunchbox, of course. There were puzzles, Viewmaster reels, like mead, school folders to put in your Trapper Keeper, t-shirts, pajamas, party supplies, because any valuable property, right, has got to be, you have a birthday party. I want to I talk to somebody who had a Rocketeer birthday party and give you a high five. You know, of course, there were sculpted pins, digital kids' watches, but also fancy collector's watches, one of which was a mail away item you could get from the Disney Channel, because that's where it really, like, a lot of people saw it only on the Disney Channel. It didn't do so well in theaters, so they were, like, promote it heavily there. This is the craziest thing, guys, I found just in researching and for this there was a rubber halloween mask of the helmet which is ridiculous it says that this guy selling it says it came from mexico so i don't know if it was made in mexico or only sold in mexico but i just looked at it like you would have to have another helmet inside just to make it keep the shape we did say that if they ever did come out with a life-size like one-to-one scale official helmet i would order it (laughs) i would definitely buy that it's it's I'm looking at eBay. It's at like just the merch, right? I found that 10-inch figure that does have weird articulation in its arms, the way or where it moves. But the thing I find very interesting, and I've been, uh, you know, a fan of collecting movie posters, and I know Stephen has some posters as well. Mm-hmm. The Rocketeer movie posters are some of the most expensive I've ever seen. Wow, they're like 300, 280. They're way up there in price to well, buy. Well, they're beautiful, especially the teaser poster, yeah. Yeah, the teaser poster is awesome. It's, uh, the teaser poster is one I was looking at. The cheapest I can see it for is about 100 bucks. I mean, it's really cool looking, but wow. I, I, mean, I mean, I say that, and right now I'm bidding over $100 on a TG and Tribune Ninja Turtles coming out of their shells poster that hung at Pizza Hut. <laughs> so I don't know. What, what, who I think I am here. Now, one more thing, guys, I want to ask you. So the, every good movie and, and product, you know, that it gets put into theaters has a giveaway contest. So what type of giveaway do you think they would have for the Rocketeer? Because I just found this and it blew my mind. How would backlot for? Wait, a date with Jennifer Connelly would be excellent, Stephen. <laughs> I'm going to guess like a Hollywood backlot tour of some sort. You would think, right? Like, that would make sense. Like, put you in the movies, they deal with Hollywood, all those things. But this was a sweepstakes being offered by Suncoast Video slash Musicland. I guess they were owned by the same parent company. But the grand prize winner won $5,000, got a check in the mail that you could use towards flying lessons. Learning to fly a plane just like Cliff Secord. Interesting. Yeah, is that interesting? It's just like, yeah, fly like the Rocketeer. We're, we're not giving you a jetpack, but you don't get in a plane. <laughs> so this is the last thing I want to ask you guys here. So to me, Disney basically licensed the movie in a standard way, had a few interesting items here and there. But yes, they totally missed the boat on what we wanted as kids, right? A Kenner or at least a Mattel action figure line. And at the very least, a costume kit. Like you said, Michael, like the fact that there was no Rocketeer helmet and rocket pack with a button that you push to make flying sounds, that is the biggest missed opportunity of the night. Or even even a backpack that looked like the Rocketeer. Yeah, would have been 
because it's a summer movie. Every kid would be like, I want that for September when I go back to school. A rocket pack style uh, backpack would have been a home run, man. Big time. Yeah, like I have a vintage RoboCop helmet that was for dress up that, that would be put to shame by a Rocketeer helmet. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious for you guys, like you, know, you mentioned the backpack there, Michael, but if there was an action figure line or something in that vein, like is there a playset or something you would imagine something from the movie you would want to be brought to life, an action figure form? Probably the Zeppelin sequence, like the whole end thing with, you know, the gangster action figures, the FBI, all of their Tommy guns, or just that, like, the the fairground for the air show would have been cool just to see, like, a bunch of little vintage planes and the Rocketeers zipping around and that would have been pretty neat, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, full a full scenario there to, to recreate the action. Well, guys, thank you so much for letting me ramble on here about this stuff that just excites me to no end. Just that moment in time, what was on the shelves, what they did to create the awareness of the Rocketeer, however successful it was. So I'll catch up with you probably for Meteor Man, if it wins oh, for 1993. We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, listen, let, we'll get back to the rest of the show, and we'll uh, wrap this sucker up. And in 2019, a new show premiered on Disney Junior following the adventures of Cliff Secord's great-granddaughter, Kit Secord. Uh, Billy Campbell even returned to provide his voice for the original Rocketeer, Recently, Disney announced a reboot with a female lead in development at Disney Plus with the writers Max Winkler and Matt Spicer writing the script for The Rocketeers. Now, here's a funny thing. I was was hoping we were going to get to this because I have watched the Disney animated show of The Rocketeer with Grace a ton. Oh, she loves she loves the show. Oh, That's awesome. And And I know a lot about it. She saw me watching the Rocketeer movie and she's been binge watching the whole thing again the past several days. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Now here's the interesting thing in the cartoon show, the dog diner still exists. The bulldog diner is, is there and it's run by her parents now. Oh, okay. And she's Lebanese. It's not clear if, if she's actually his great granddaughter because her grandfather was gifted a case. And the way the the first episode premieres is he's got this trunk in his airport hangar and she receives a gift of the, of the Rocketeer's helmet. And he says, my grandfather, who they are not clear if it's, if it's supposed to be cliff or not, they kind of like allude to it being that Mm -hmm. said, Someday, someone will appear to me with the helmet, and then this trunk is for them. And then they open the trunk, and it's the rocket pack. Oh. Yeah. I love how serious you just mentioned that on this this kid's cartoon show. It's it's a very good kid's cartoon. You know what? I have actually been wanting to watch it. Like, I've been wanting to watch it since they announced it. And I couldn't get Zoe or Kara interested at the time that it did pop up. But the funny part is now I'm having, like, the opposite reaction of, of what you had. That I was watching The Rocketeer the other day. And I had, like I said, I had started it. And then when I went to finish it, Zoe did come and sit 
and watch maybe like the last, I don't know, half with me. And she got into it. So the machine gun part she watched. Yeah, she watched all the violent parts with the Nazis (laughs) and everything. Yes. Um, I'm not going to claim that I'm the world's greatest father, but hey, uh, whatever. Maybe I'm the dad, I'm the world's coolest dad because I'm showing the seven-year-old the good stuff already. Um, But uh you know, I, I kind of mentioned to her, like I like ended the movie and then I was like, you know, they got like a cartoon now of this. And she's like, really? So like I might be heading into the cartoon. So I'll have to do like a one year follow up on this episode and let you guys know how that <laughs> yeah. turned out. It, it, it's kind of cool. Like the, the grandfather redesigns the helmet to make it for her. And, you know, the, it's it's interesting. And they, but they do pay a lot of homage to the original Rocketeer. There's a statue in town about the Rocketeer. And they even go, you know, the original Rocketeer was around in the 1930s and 40s, which was a really long time ago, kid. That's <laughs> <laughs> really funny. And so Billy, <laughs> Billy Campbell voices him in newsreel footage that yes. I was reading. Yeah. And it's, it's only in the first episode or so. Okay. And then, it kind of deviates, and she's the hero for the fir- for most of the first season. But then other kids pick up the mantle and kind of become like a superhero team, and it's interesting. And they have all these little cheesy style villains that are very relatable to be like nineteen thirties or mm-hmm. even like Batman sixty six style, like Adam West villains, if you will, like you know cheesy cartoon villains. That's awesome. Funny. But it's a cute show, and it's really, honestly, of all the kids' shows she watches, one of the better ones that is a lot fun to watch. But that's enough on the, you know, children's animated Disney <laughs> <laughs> Rocketeer show. To build off of that, I do think that the reputation for this movie has grown, and there's way more stuff for it now than there was in 1991. I mean, Funko has made a ton of Rocketeer action figures. Unfortunately, they can only make the Rocketeer. There's no other really toy character in it. But, you know, I, I think they're building off the nostalgia that guys our age have for it. Uh, Sadly, I sold my Funko Pop Rocketeer. But what? I had oh, you just lost some cool points. Yeah, I, I, ha- I had to sell it maybe about two years ago. It went for a lot of money, though. It really did. It sold for almost $100, just yeah. that one figure. And, and it I, was worth every penny. I've got it right here on my shelf. <laughs> I, I was really sad to part with it. It was one of those things that was like really conflicted, but I was like... Uh, then I bought the statue. <laughs> so nice. I, I, I like that statue. I might have to look for that. Uh, you know, this is one of these ones, and you know that I've... They have it in World occasion. Comics if you want one. I can go I, get it for I you. I might go look. You know, I've been somebody who's done like cosplay over time, and this is a character that I've actually always really wanted to do that with. Um, do and I have the hair for it. it. Do have the hair well, for yes, it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I might as well do it while I've still got it. But um, you know, this is one where I don't see that done a lot in all the comic cons that I've gone to, and I've seen pictures of people doing it online. But like, this is something, especially now that we're like thirty years out. Not that we're going to have any uh, Comic-Cons this year necessarily, but this would be a really fun one to, I think, redo in something like that at a point. And it seems like the helmet would be pretty easy if you had a 3D printer to make it with a 3D printer and, you know, spray paint it with gold paint or whatever. It would be pretty cool. Just a thought. I'm, I'm kind of tempted just to do that to, like, add to my now, like, burgeoning helmet collection <laughs> you know what i mean dude if they release this as a helmet like a, a one-to-one scale helmet, oh, that'd be cool click order <laughs> done <laughs> that'll be the first and only helmet i ever buy but i would definitely buy that you look one. like a hood ornament 
dude. Oh yes. my god, I would love it. I would literally wear that thing. I forgot. I swear to God, I would. I put my life size Batman utility belt on and that helmet on, and just post it on social media. So, what do you think about the possibility of this sequel or reboot or whatever it's going to be? It looks like it's being written by Henry Winkler's son, Max Winkler. I, I mean. I'm open to watch anything about it. I'd be I'd be game to give it a shot and check out the pilot and see what what it's all about. I think it's a movie. Is it a movie or, or a miniseries? Okay. I mean, either way, I'm in. What I would hope is that they keep the aesthetic, that they keep it within the world that it's established. You know, one of the funny things um, that they happily avoided with the original was Disney was pushing at the time. I think it was Michael Eisner was really pushing at the time to update the look and make it almost look like a NASA sort of suit, like a really like more futuristic helmet and things like that. And that would have sucked. You know what I mean? Like, and so that's why I really hope that if they do push ahead with it, that they, you know, they'll do their little bit of modernization that they do with these things, but that they keep it in this zone because that art deco look is just so cool. I mean, you just said it like the hood ornament line from the movie. I mean, like it's great, but it's also like, it's so perfect. It looks so perfect for the era and everything. And it would be a shame if they moved away from that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you know, I'd be open to see what, what, what it comes to. I mean, I don't know what I was going to say. I had a funny thought, but now I lost it. Now, where do they where do they place it? Do they do they reboot it and it's just the Rocketeer over again? Do you think they sequelize it and make it like Cold War Rocketeer? I mean, like, what do you guys see? What would you want to see? I bet you it's going to be modern day. Like they're going to find the rocket pack. They're going to find the helmet and do like the cartoon show is what I my theory. I'm going to guess. See, I feel like they'd have a hard time with that because like you're competing against like Iron Man in that space. You know what I mean? It's like, what do you do? Like, do you do the repulsors and sort of thing that they do with that? Like, I don't know. I I, I hope that they keep it back. <laughs> it's all, It's also kind of a question of like, you know, what's old is new again kind of thing. Like they just dropped, you know, the Mighty Ducks. And I also hope that they if they if this show does come to fruition they do have some of the actors who played roles in the movie pop up in this film even if they're playing other characters just to make little cameos like oh my god it's him it's the real rocketeer <laughs> just out of here it'll just fanboy out it'd be cool to set in like 1960s hollywood as opposed to 1930s hollywood there's still some kind okay. of okay so there's like you know there's a nostalgia for the 1960s now you know, playing off things like, you know, Mad Men and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, and those kinds of movies. And it'd be cool to see this kind of cheesy character bouncing around in 1960s Hollywood. I, again, I, I, I agree. I don't think he'd work in present day because he's so earnest and his powers are not really <laughs> existent. He just flies. Fair point. You know what I kind of want to see now that we're like hashing this out is a Bollywood rocketeer. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, it might be a train wreck, but some of those Bollywood movies, especially with some of, like, the, uh, like, really, like, physics-defying out there graphics that they do in some more modern stuff of theirs, I think it'd be my really kind of, like, a fun thing to see this done that way. So there Not necessarily be- with all the musical stuff, but, like, kind of, like, the action Bollywood stuff that they have cranking out these days. Would, would there be a flying dance sequence at some point? That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. why I curbed it. I saw the twinkle in your eye. That's why I wanted to curb that right before you even got to it. <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. So, anyway. <laughs> I don't know where to transition from here. But 
So, as I mentioned earlier, director Joe Johnston, who has a very interesting career, if you ask me. He's made a lot of movies that made huge money, including movies like Jumanji, October Sky, The Wolfman, and the aforementioned Jurassic Park 3, which is horrible in my opinion. And he oh, also, it's horrible. It's horrible. Oh, I hate gosh. it so much. <laughs> I hate that movie so much. I think that's one of those. Hates- that's one of those ones that went around the bend and came back for me in a good way. I, that's a movie I like to watch because I think it's like really dopey and so <laughs> one stupid. of those, one of those bad ones. You know, Ange um, back in college had a professor that had worked um, with somebody that had done some of the sound design for that, and he was always giving them grief that you could like hear the cell phone inside the dinosaur, <laughs> you know, but I, I digress. <laughs> the, the thing that's like uh, annoying about that movie and we're going to go way off topic, but it's like, it, it takes away the majesty of the first one. And it makes like the Alan Grant character just feel not as significant because the way they play him in this movie, in, in my opinion yeah but my favorite jurassic park moment of any movie ever is in that one when he's dreaming and the director's <laughs> like hello alan Can I just say, so i was working in a movie theater when that came out and i remember my friends had seen it on opening night because i was working when it came out and they go it's so bad there's a part where a raptor says alan he talks yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, well, now I have to see it just for that. And sure enough, yeah. once that happens, you're like, okay, can I leave now? Is the movie over? Is it done? Oh, That's God. an awful movie. Joe Johnston. Oh, man. And, and the bar is very high for terrible Jurassic Park sequels because they're all terrible. Oh. And for that to be the most terrible, you know it's really bad. Yeah. yeah. Like, The Lost World oh, is bad. God. And and the book is good. And the book's but good. But the movie is bad. Bad. So oh, bad. it's so bad. Oh, oh my god. That, that whole third act when they're just traipsing around San Diego. Wait, wait, when you have Vince Vaughn and you can't make him funny in a movie, <laughs> you got a real problem. <laughs> like, come and on. And I'm sorry, oh. Jurassic World sucks. It's awful. I hate it. Yeah. yeah I, I, again, those are like, I look at those in the same way. I look at like the Transformers movie. They're popcorn flicks, but I wish they'd stuck any other name besides Jurassic whatever sure. on them because it, it definitely feels like it sh- is the same, but it feels like it shouldn't be. It feels like it shouldn't be tacked to that first one. But, you know, it's like as, on a longer timeline, it might be that the Jurassic Park slash world franchise is just bad. And they happen to get lucky with that first one. <laughs> I don't know. I could watch that first one a million times. It's great. It never gets, it never gets old. But that was a long segue on Jurassic Park <laughs> where Joe Johnson did one bad movie about it. But, you know, did you guys know that he returned to superhero movies in 2011? Oh, yeah. What was that movie? Captain America, First Avenger. That's right. Which, <laughs> Another perfect 30s proxy. <laughs> which I also kind of don't like that movie. Really? See, uh, I funny actually, part, to be honest, I really don't like that what? movie. Well, here's the funny thing for me. First time I saw that movie, I hated it. I hated that movie the first time I saw it. Subsequent viewings, it's getting better and better and better. And now I'm actually a fan of it. But like, definitely in those first times that I watched that, I couldn't stand that movie. And it's still like, if I watch like the through, you know, the whole bunch of them, 
I tend to leave that and like the Hulk alone. <laughs> I don't really um, go back and watch those necessarily. Like I showed Zoe um, all those. And actually the reason I kind of skipped that one is I thought she'd be more afraid of Red Skull. So I, that's why I kind of like my main thing with that one. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, not the best of all the Avengers properties, but like it's definitely grown a lot on me over time. Like if I had to say my opinion, and this is strictly my opinion, Thor to the Dark World is the worst movie. No, but by far. <laughs> Thor number one is probably the second worst movie. Yes. Oh, see, I disagree hard there. <laughs> I like and, that one. And Captain America, the first Avenger, is the third worst oh, movie. Oh, you're crazy. I, I think it's a really, I think it's cool. And when Joe Johnson oh. was announced, I was super excited that he was returning to the world of like 1930s, 40s superheroes. Hate, There's I a lot of parallels that. between these two movies, I feel. I, I guess. There is, yeah, no, I mean, th that's why I say it is like, he, he's pretty good at the period movie, you know, like between, and again, not that he's directly responsible for costuming and all that sort of thing, but the general look and feel of the movie, I feel like he does really well with that time period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd watch more movies that he would produce in that time period. I'll give it a rewatch, I will, but adversely, I think the best Marvel movie is Captain America the Winter Soldier. Yes. I, I agree. I think that's I the best Marvel movie, bar none. Hands down, it is the best one. And then probably Endgame, in my opinion. No. Mm. Yeah, I would I would be up there with like that and like Winter Soldier. Uh, like just said, say, like, I'm sorry, not Winter Soldier. I mean to say uh Civil War, excuse me. <laughs> Civil War's good. Civil War's good. I think Winter Soldier's better because it's just such a like it you could say that movie is not even a superhero movie if you take Captain America out of yeah, it. It's it, just like a, a great movie. The paranoid, so. you know, seventies paranoia conspiracy thriller. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so weird, weird, like weird ta tangent here. When I when I lived in Los Angeles, a bunch of my friends worked for Marvel, and they were working with Joe Johnston on the casting of Captain America: The First Avenger. So they were reporting back to me who the actors were and how they were doing in each read. <laughs> and, it was very funny to hear their take on different actors reading. And my favorite was John Krasinski read for Captain America. Yeah. And there's that part when Captain America has to say very forcefully, I'm the captain, you know, <laughs> kind of on the airplane. Uh, and John Krasinski does like the gym from the office shrug and he goes, I'm the captain. <laughs> and so the entire, like my friends and I will still sometimes be like, I'm the captain. That's great. <laughs> like a little gym, gym shrug. So. Well, he literally said in an interview, he's like, I saw I was up against Chris Evans, and I saw how big he was, and I knew I had no shot. So, <laughs> Although he's doing all right for himself with the Jack Ryan stuff now. Oh, yeah. And I really hope that he's Reed Richards. I know Steven might feel differently. Yeah, we'll oh, see. Man. We'll see. If he's Reed Richards, holy cow, I'm all in. I'm all in. So anyway, wow. Long segue on that one. <laughs> but what do you guys feel is the legacy of the Rocketeer? Pete? Mm, legacy. Um, it's staying power. Um, you know, Steven said it best before that there's uh, it's become a cult movie. There's a lot more interest in people that are our age that are um, waxing nostalgic about this. Um, introducing it to the next generation. You know, my daughter got a kick out of it the other day. Um, you know, this is one of these films that it, maybe it's not fair to say this, but I feel like in a way was 
ahead of its time or, or at least out of place when it came out. And so now it's finding a little bit more legs. Um, you know, that said, it's never going to be like on the Mount Rushmore of this type of movie, you know, like the kind of um, pulp action adventure movie, a la the Indiana Jones type of movies, but it holds its own. It still stands up. Um, I'll watch this anytime it's still on in the future. I was very happy that it was on Disney plus. It was one of the first things that I watched um, when I got Disney plus, and then I watched it again this last week. So for me, it, it, it still carries that um, fun feeling that I had as a kid watching this movie and loving it then. And the aesthetics and everything about it, it's just, it still holds. And I, I think for a lot of people, it still holds. Okay. Steven. Agreed. You know, I think when you're a kid, you see certain movies and years later you think, Oh, I should revisit that movie. And maybe you get together with a few friends who are your age and you're like, Oh, remember this movie? Remember that movie? And oftentimes you revisit a movie and it's terrible, (laughs) you know? And with this, I had friends in college and we'd be like, Oh, did you see this? Did you see the rocketeer? One day we watched the rocketeer again and we're like, you know what? This movie's pretty awesome. This movie really holds up. And uh, I think that's what it is. It's, you know, it's one of those movies that it never, it was never dated because of the time period. So it doesn't have like those nineties styles to it. It's kind of a timeless movie and it will always be a timeless movie. Uh, And I think the other big thing is that that rocketeer design is just incredible. Mm. Yeah. It's iconic. It's one of a kind. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I would love to see it again in a movie in a bigger capacity. Agreed. Like I look at this movie and so one of the things that's always stuck in my brain about particular movies and another superhero esque movie is the original Superman movie where the poster says, you'll believe a man can fly, right? None of us were old enough to see that movie in the theater. And this was the first like superhero movie that I would see in the theater where I saw a man fly and I was like, wow. And it really stuck with me. And like you said, that suit and that helmet is very iconic. And that leather jacket is so awesome mm-hmm. that to this day, I still want a leather jacket like that, that has those cool buttons. Like that. It was such a cool thing. Really loved it. Uh, I just think it has one of those cult classic kind of feels or like, you know, movies that, weren't that popular in the theaters but now have had this like resurgence between collectibles and so on and so forth there's so many statues that have come out in the past couple of years action figures funko pops and so on and so forth that are of that nostalgia and if you even go on amazon and look up the graphic novels they sell them in trade and they're very expensive because they're so desired and did you know that alex ross did a lot of the covers and some of the issues of the Rocketeer uh, graphic novels. I've seen the covers. Yeah. Oh, what I wouldn't give for an Alex Ross Rocketeer piece of art. <laughs> oh my God, forget it. You, forget you it. know the other thing about this movie, which is very different from the other two movies we've covered, which were Batman and Ninja Turtles. This did not really permeate the pop culture. No. You know, Batman and Ninja Turtles were everywhere. Every kid... Yeah had every Batman toy and every Ninja Turtle toy and the shirts and the video games. And, you know, those, some of those things existed for Rocketeer, but it wasn't this like ubiquitous, you know, you couldn't leave your house without seeing 
a Ninja Turtles or Batman thing. Even Dick Tracy, which came out the previous summer, had a ton of merchandise. Those posters were everywhere. I had Dick Tracy um, <laughs> child's aftershave <laughs> and uh, and like shaving cream. <laughs> it was like a Dick Tracy child's shaving kit. <laughs> I did not have the Rocketeer shaving kit, apparently. You had the Dick Tracy manscaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So no, but like you're you're so right about that. And like, frankly, and and I don't. I, we kind of glossed over this a little bit. Like I said, me and my friends like this, but like overall, it wasn't even well loved by other kids that I knew. Mm-hmm. You know, like this was a bonding thing when Mike and I met. That him and I were like, oh, you like this? I liked this. You know, <laughs> like because I didn't know that many people that had liked this as much as as I did, or my couple of like really close friends when I was younger liked it. So. No, for sure. It, it definitely, you're right. It did not permeate the way that a lot of the other stuff at the time did. Which I think, you know, in a way, especially with the format of this show that you guys have, I was sweating it <laughs> with, with, the, uh, with the vote. I wasn't sure if it was going to go to Turtles 2 and, and, and mess with our thing with that yeah. or go this way. But, you know, enough people voted that it went to the Rocketeer. So I'm happy to see that, you know? I kind of forced the numbers because oh, I'm I, I, looking the books already. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, oh, I cooked a baby. I was literally sharing the thing, like, vote for this. <laughs> Campaigning. <laughs> I, I was lobbying for the Rocketeer. <laughs> I'm corrupt. I'm a corrupt, corrupt Come man. on. Sorry. I was like, I can't do three months straight of Ninja Turtles. I just can't do it. <laughs> and like, whenever we post the polls, Anna will ask me, what do you want me to vote for? And I say, whatever you want. It's up to you. It's not I up don't, to me. I tell, I tell Dory, you're voting for this one. <laughs> because I really wanted to do Death of the Incredible Hulk in 1990 and not Ninja Turtles. I, I I would have liked that too because I haven't seen that movie in forever. Oh my god, I haven't seen that in a long time. So you guys, what I'm hearing, need like a double secret um, <laughs> Patreon where you go and do the movies that nobody voted for, or the opposite that they voted for, or whatever. Well, eventually, I'm sure the voting, like as we keep circling around these years, the voting will get down to the ones. <laughs> That's true. That's a good idea. I didn't think about that. Once we get through the the decade, we have to go back to start over yeah. again and just. T- Eliminate the one that won and just do the next crappy movie after that. Eventually, you'll have to do Darkman 2 and 3. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'll phone a friend for that one. So, So, so Pete, one of the things we'd like to do here on uh, 90 Super Cinema is rapid fire. So we have a list of questions that we like to ask everybody or each other, at least, and give ourselves, you know, our answers as quickly as possible to get through the answers. So I will start with you with question number one. Letter grade for the Rocketeer. Uh, letter grade today, um, B plus or A minus. As a kid, it would have been an A plus. Steven? I'll say a solid B. I per- I'll give it a B plus also. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I interrupted you. I was going to say, you know, of the, of, so far we've covered Batman, Ninja Turtles, and Rocketeer. I'd say Rocketeer is my third favorite of those. Okay, fair. I'll give it a B plus also. Fair, fine. So B, B plus, B plus. Great. So, Pete, who is your favorite character in this movie? I mean, I guess it's got to be Cliff, right? I mean, like, you know, there's not a ton going on elsewhere. I mean, you know, there's definitely, like, some good supporting characters. But, you know, he's the one you're following, so that's the one I got to go with. Steven? 
I'll also say Cliff Secord. How how exciting it would be to be Cliff Secord. He's got the life. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I'm a toss up here. I'm either gonna go with PV or Jenny, just because. Man, I loved Jennifer Connelly in this movie, and I still to this day loved her in this movie. And Peavy's just awesome in this movie. He's, he's like, he's a super genius. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, if I had to pick a second, it might be um, the fabulous portrayal of Howard Hughes oh. by uh, Terry O'Quinn. <laughs> I might also go with John Polito, who comes up with the Rocketeer in the weirdest way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that is pretty good. So. Favorite moment in this movie, Pete? What's your favorite moment? Um, it's got to be the fight on the ridiculous. I don't know how the heck they got it halfway around the world's Nazi Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody happened to notice this uh, Zeppelin with these giant Nazi swastikas on it, um, slowly hovering over to Hollywood. But um, that's that's a it's just great. Uh, the the scenes all fighting on top of it, and then inside, and him going out the window and blowing up and everything, and it crashing. Just it's just so much fun. Steven, what's your favorite moment? One part that my friend Brian and I used to quote a lot in college. It's in that same scene. Is when Paul Sorvino learns that Timothy Dalton's a Nazi, and he turns on him and he goes, "I may not make an honest buck, but I'm a red blooded American." <laughs> <laughs> I just love how disgusted he is by the fact that he's a Nazi. Yeah. I love the second little like blip with that too, where like they're shooting at the Nazis and the FBI catches up to him and they like pause for a second to like look at each other <laughs> and then they just go back to shooting. So wonderful. It is so good. It's good stuff. So um my favorite moment in the movie is when when we first see him in the Rocketeer suit at the air show and he's flying around to save the old guy in the airplane, and his head goes through the bottom of the plane. <laughs> He's like, oh, hey. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think that whole scene is hilarious. Because, you know, the the host of the event is trying to like, yeah, this is all part of the show, folks. It's great. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's all part of the show. <laughs> okay. So least favorite moment in the movie. Pete, what's your least favorite moment? Oh, this is where I'm going to struggle with the rapid fire. Um, I'm trying to think. What's like a slow, boring, terrible moment in this? Uh, I'll go. I'll tell you. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll, come I'll, back to me. I got to think. <laughs> so, so my least favorite moment is in that like fancy restaurant where uh, Neville is talking to Jenny and they're having dinner and he's super creepy and the whole W.C. Fields thing, like the way he stares at her chest, to me, it took me out of the movie because it just doesn't feel like that's one of the parts that would really translate today. All right, you reminded me. It's an extension of what you just said. It's when he takes her and wants to go dance. She's like, there's no music. And he's like, I hear music. And they're like dancing to like silence for like 30 seconds before like the orchestra just poof shows up out of nowhere. I actually do recall the other day sitting on the couch and being like, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to pick a Neville uh, and Jenny dinner scene. It's when Cliff just dresses up as a waiter, which is the most cliched <laughs> thing you do in one of these movies. And he's a bad waiter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, it's, it's a little too, it's a little too much. You know what I love about that, though, is that he puts the waiter suit on over his Rocketeer outfit. So, like, the <laughs> bottom leather part of the Rocketeer thing sticking out. It's like, are you serious with that? <laughs> but the jacket fits perfectly. It yeah. Fits perfect. 
<laughs> it was like it was cut to fit right over that leather jacket, amazingly. So, okay. So, how would you improve this movie, Pete? I don't know that I could, to be honest with you. I, I, I think it's a lot of fun for what it is for when it was created. I'd like to see Cliff become a little more competent with the rocket a little earlier on. I feel like he bumbles with it for like a good three quarters of the movie before he finally kind of gets the hang of it at the very end, just as it's like it explodes. I'd really like to see him like really be doing a better job with it a little sooner. I feel like Steven, maybe some sort of distinct villain with some sort of power would have been good to sell it to kids a little bit more. Cause like I said, not Hitler, not Hitler. Cause <laughs> you know, you had one rocketeer Bendham figure and that was like, who else would you have made a toy of what kids walking around with like a Neville Sinclair action figure? No Howard Hughes action figure. Yeah. Whereas like Dick Tracy, which came out the previous summer had so many cool villains to choose from some of whom are in the movie for like two seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that would be my idea. I, I think it's it's two things. One, I would have liked to see Jenny Blake's role fleshed out a little bit better mm-hmm. and given her more to do. That would have been really nice. And also, I really wish they didn't blow up the rocket pack at the end of the movie. I wish they would have figured out a different way to kill Neville and not destroy the rocket pack so that essentially you can't have a sequel because the rocket pack is gone. No, because the way they end the thing is that uh, she gives him the plans that she stole from the Nazi headquarters. Yeah. So now, now Peavy's going to build it newer and bigger and better than before. He figured out a way to fix it and make it even better. It won't burn. <laughs> this one's powered by plutonium. We've got a nuclear pack on your back, kid. It's, it's, but I did 40s now. It's like Groot dies to beget baby Groot. We're going to have like the baby Groot rocket pack in the next movie. <laughs> I, I guess. All right. <laughs> okay. So last rapid fire question. Favorite non-rocketeer Joe Johnston movie. Steven, you go first. Because Pete's got to Google it. It's got it's got to be <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I saw Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in theaters. I just watched it with my kids. Totally holds up. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Jumanji? Um, I really like Jumanji a lot. I think that's what I would go with. I think I'm a dead tie between Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji. I think they're both great. Uh, I love Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I haven't watched it recently. But I do love Jumanji, mostly because of Robin Williams. He steals the show in that movie. We just watched that as well, and the kids were enthralled. That's cool. So, Pete, I have a question for you. Yes. Do you have those cards nearby that we that we use on our podcast? Oh, yeah. I can dig our cards out. Cards? Yes. So a, a recent, and this is thanks to the good guys over at the Retro Network, we have this um, big movie quiz. Oh, um, so, uh, maybe I'll throw the ball into Steven's court because you picked last time, Michael, we've got action movies, mm. comedy classics, or Oscar winners. Ah, I'll go with comedy classics. All right. Now, uh, fair warning with these cards. Some of these are like ridiculously easy. Okay. And then some are ridiculously hard. So All right. <laughs> I can't guarantee which version of the, uh, the question we're going to get, but I'll, I'll give it a, a shuffle and, and see what we get here. You want to do a, uh, a three uh, set of these or sure. Whatever. Whatever right. you, 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 you decide. I trust your judgment. 
Okay, so again, these are really random. They they don't necessarily fit the uh, 90s thing. They kind of pop up all over the place. Okay. So this is uh, two um, questions on which year things popped up. So in what year was Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy released? And I guess either one of you could answer this, frankly. 2003. 2004. 2004 has it. Ooh. Oh, so you know what we can do here? We can bet, do best uh, <laughs> like uh, two out of three or something. Who gets the... Uh, the most answers right so in that same vein then in what year was finding nemo released 2003 i think 2003 also yeah all right well you both get the point for that one <laughs> you can't just answer what steven's gonna answer now though right <laughs> damn all right ted striker captain Ovur, and rex kramer are all characters in which film i know i don't know airplane <laughs> Airplane it is. <laughs> I don't know. You want to keep going or, or are we calling uh, Stephen the winner here? Uh, he's going to win, but I like to see his knowledge. So go for All it. All right. What is the name of Count Dracula's daughter in Hotel Transylvania? Oh, crap. My kids love this movie. I never saw the movie. These are know. great movies. Hold on. Oh, Mavis. Mavis it oh, is. Wow. I did. I did dig in there for that one. Hold that out of the thin air there. I yes. saw the third one. All right. So, all right. We'll do two more. Okay. All right, so get your hand over the buzzer, all right? <laughs> We're going into lightning round here. Who directed Blazing Saddles? Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. All right, that was a tie. <laughs> <laughs> the Disaster Artist is based on the real-life production of which cult film? The Room. The Room. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> right, i got to keep going. i got to see who can get the Ooh. next one uh, quickest. That might be the uh, the winner winner. What U.S. state does Sandra Bullock's character represent in Miss United States pageant? New Jersey. Finale? Oh, before the question was even asked. Really? You know that? <laughs> Mr. Yes, I know that. that. one you know. Mr. Mr. Congeniality over here. I saw it in theaters. It took my little sister to see it, and I can't remember a thing. I've seen I, it a few times. I think there's no better note to end those questions on than that one. All right, you got me on Miss Congeniality. Congratulations. <laughs> There was a there was a Sandra Bullock marathon a few weeks ago on like TBS. It was like I was watching Speed, and then Miss Congeniality came right on after. I was like, "Well, I'm here already." So <laughs> here we are. So, anyway, next up in 1992, what can you vote for? We've got two doctors and a Mister Mom. Steven, what are the movies we have? So if you want to see Full Moon's attempt to rewrite their Doctor Strange script after they lost the rights to the character, then vote for Dr. Mordred. Oh, God. <laughs> and if you're into more evil physicians that slice and dice their patients, vote for Dr. Giggles. <laughs> or if you'd prefer to spend your time with a bat, a cat, and a penguin, then please vote for Batman Returns. <laughs> now... Uh, I can tell you my votes are already going to Batman Returns because I have no clue what the heck those other two are. It's a slim year. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'd ever find Dr. Mordred or Dr. Giggles. Well, you can find them right here in my collection. Ooh. <laughs> you come to my house. Is that a lenticular cover of a VHS? Because no, it kind of no, like no. glistened a little bit. It's just the light in my room. Okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, so yeah, I guess Batman Returns will most likely win, but... God, do I hate that movie. 
Okay, then we'll have something to disagree about. Where this was a very agreeable episode, we have something we can discuss and have reasons why we don't like or like this movie. Okay, cool. If if so happens that Batman Returns is selected, you know it's winning. There's no way yes. Doctor Mordred's winning. If if you um, good <laughs> listeners uh, want to punish Mike a little longer and go with Doctor Mordred or Doctor Giggles, we'll have Batman Returns in, in about a year and change <laughs> on good old box office thirty. Okay. okay. <laughs> Great. Well, that about does it here for our 90 Super Cinema Box Office 30 crossover. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. On oh, this, thank uh, you for adventure. having me. And as always, for everybody, thanks so much for listening. And you check us out first on Patreon for this episode. And then one month later, we'll be dropping it on the Box Office 30 main feed so we can really dive into what people have to say and see what they got. So as always, thanks so much for listening. Farewell. Farewell. Bye-bye. I don't know. I never know how to fucking end these things. <laughs> I just don't know a way out. I don't know a way out. <laughs>